0: Today, I'll be giving a talk on uh, mechanical ventilation on obstructive lung disease. Um, I do have a uh, PDF of this talk, and this is the QR code. I think it should work for everybody to uh, actually view and keep for yourselves if you want. Um, If any issues with that, there's my email and also my number, and I'm happy to actually send it or re-upload it if needed. Okay, so um, full disclaimer. So most of the talk today is going to be on uh, invasive mechanical ventilation and the approach to waveform analysis and uh, and uh, respiratory mechanics in general, with special uh, emphasis on autopeep. I will touch very very lightly on non-invasive ventilation. It's is, it is particularly important in obstructive lung disease, particularly COPD. However. Um, I will also be probably focusing more on the COPD asthma concept of obstructive lung disease. There are other disease processes that cause obstruction, of course, but most of the literature, as we know, is uh, dedicated to both of these disease processes. So I'll start with a case. Um, we, this was a case from maybe two three weeks ago that came to our ICU at a hospital center. This is a 35-year-old man. Uh, history of asthma, and he is a smoker. He's brought in by the ambulance because he was complaining of acute shortness of breath. The uh, MS said he was tripoding an extremist. He had a silent chest. He was given um, several medications uh, in order to try and help him out. When he came to the ED, his temperature was... Uh, was okay. He was uh, having abnormal vital signs. His heart rate was a little bit on the lower side. Uh, obviously, respiratory distress. His respiratory rate was in the 40s. Blood pressure 220 over 90, static okay. But as soon as he got there, he lost consciousness, consciousness and was emergently intubated. Uh, Bavik, I'm just going back to the QR code for you. I also will have it at the end of the talk as well for those who missed it. Uh, so you don't have to worry if this helps. Okay, so back to our patient. He gets some blood drawn. Things are not uh, particularly abnormal. He has an uh, EKG that shows no ischemic and he is COVID negative and uh, his urine drug screen is positive for THC, and by history, actually, his partner uh, actually disclosed that he was actually uh, smoking marijuana before this all happened. So in the ED these are his initial ventilator settings. He's put on a respiratory rate of six, title volume of 450. Uh, baseline of 100% of 502, just as the initial setting on and a peak of five. This peak at the time was 26, plateau of 15. There's no auto-keep, and then a post-intubation APG is actually collected, uh, which shows severe respiratory acidosis and a pH of 708 of um, TCO2 of 94 and an oxygen level of 296. So, the talk today would be how to approach a patient that comes uh, into your ICU looking like this. I'll talk briefly about the trends in mechanical ventilation and obstructive lung disease. Actually, over the past two decades, um, this is a cohort of 24,000 patients from 38 countries. You'll notice that there's been a decreased rate of acute exacerbations of COPD amongst mechanically ventilated patients. So it's down from 10% in 1998 to about 8% uh, in 2016. Since then, there's been an increased use in non invasive ventilation as the first ventilatory support in the ICU. Um, and the decreased overall mortality, as you can see at the bottom uh, bottom graphs. But when we talk about COPD in particular, um, there's been a more recent uh, study that looked at what the epidemiology truly is. And um, it looks like most of the patients that do have a diagnosis of severe COPD actually get intimated for other causes rather than acute exacerbations. Uh, Only 12% have been found to have acute exacerbations. And when we looked at these patients, it was actually, uh, was actually, they had favorable overall uh, outbreaks. They had shorter mechanical ventilator days, ICU length in hospital, length of stay, and their mortality of the ICU in the hospital was also better. So it looks like. Ventilating a true for of uh, COPD invasively is overall favorable. But before we actually talk about uh, the actual ventilatory strategies, I'm going to uh, spend some time talking about respiratory system mechanics uh, in obstructive lung disease and also touching highly upon the concept of bottle P and dynamic hyperinflation, because these are the two uh, pathologies that are probably the most important when it comes to obstructive lung disease in general. So if you guys remember, positive pressure ventilation, it is dependent on bones law. We need two pressures at two different points and the difference between these two pressures will allow uh, gas to flow and eventually distend the loss. So here uh, you have the equation of motion, which dictates that the pressure that the ventilator has to give during inspiration has to overcome resistive forces of the airways and the tubing, which is your resistive pressure and then reach the lung, distended, which is the distend pressure. And there is always usually a baseline of PEEP. And your alveolar pressure is, of course, equal the pressure uh, that has been used to actually um, generate the volume, plus the PEEP that the that only provides a baseline. Now, exhalation is a little bit different because here it is completely passive, right? Technically, the ventilator shuts off, and now the flow of gas from the lungs back to the atmosphere or to the ventilator is dependent on the alveolar pressure and its difference between, and the difference between that and the airway pressures, which are now the two. So you'll notice that. The distensive pressures and the resistive pressures actually equalize in order to generate that flow. Another important concept when it comes to exhalation is natural decay or the time constant. Right? So the lungs actually follow the natural processes of, of uh, losing air um, and. There is a specific time by which a certain amount of lung volume or pressure is lost from the lungs. Okay. So, there, the, um, this, of course, assumes that the lung is seen compartment model with a single resistance the compliance. It uh, follows a mono exponential equation that is seen here. I personally prefer memorizing the numbers for each time constant. You'll notice. 37% of the volume is left in the lungs after one time constant, 40% oxygen two. And you'll notice that four, we have 2% of the lung volume that's left there. So this is just a big figure of uh, what normal passive ventilation would look like. This is, this is different modes, uh, waveform analysis based on different ones. Of course, differs based on the lung mechanics, what the ventilator uh, settings are, the patient characteristics, and of course the interaction between the ventilator and the patient himself. Now when we look at normal passive inhalation and exhalation, I can hear the different uh, phases of the respiratory cycles. You start, we start inspiration at point A. The pressures of the ventilator are high. The pressures of the alveoli equal the PEEP. This difference in pressure generates flow. And end in inspiration, the pressures of the alveoli and the airways actually equalize. And then at start expiration, now the, the ventilator cycles, of course. So it goes from a positive pressure that was used to deliver the volume down to a PEEP. And the difference between the alveolar pressures, and that peak will generate the flow. And towards the end of expiration, all of the lung volume is exhaled. Once the pressures equalize, and we we'll return back to our same volume store, the FRC. Now, when we have increased resistance, again, depending on the mode, things will be different when we look at the waveforms. When we talk about volume control, we talk about the increase in the peak pressures because the resistive pressures went up. But almost universally during exhalation, you'll notice that there is decreased flow because of that increased resistance and an increase in the time constant or the RC, regardless what the of ventilation is used. In pressure control ventilation, you'll notice that the resistance goes up. The result of decreased flow also uh, uh, that leads to a reduction of the overall inhaled volume. But again, on exhalation, decreased flow and increased time constant C. So here's a picture of of waveforms from a ventilator, and you'll notice how the peak pressures are exceeding high here in the setting of acute bronchospasm and increased respiratory resistance. And this figure also uh, depicts better the uh, increased time constants. You'll notice that it takes longer for the lungs to actually return to resting volume and depending on uh, the disease process with they do, the obstruction, you will want no a longer um, RC. Sometimes, when you look at the ventilator itself, you'll notice that the RC is, is particularly long just by subjective uh, observation. So, you'll notice on the volume time curve here at the bottom, the, uh, the return to baseline takes a very long time, and the curve is kind of pulled upwards um, from the middle. Now the most important pathology like I said earlier in obstructive lung disease is severe uh, obstruction in particular is dynamic hyperinflation and auto peep. Now, dynamic hyperinflation is a volume phenomenon where there's no, not enough time to actually exhale, so there is residual volume, volume at the end of expiration. And what results from that is the pressure phenomenon or auto peep, also called the intrinsic peep, where the end expiratory alveolar pressures are higher because of that retained volume. So what basically happens here, again, I'm a visual person, so I like to actually look at things visually. You'll notice at the end of inspiration, the uh, alveolar and ventilatory pressures have equalized. The ventilator cycles, but the problem is now we have increased resistance. So the flow rate is lower. And there is a uh, decreased volume that uh, leaves the lung by the end of exhalation. So because of that retained volume, now you have a certain degree of auto-peep. That's the number five in red in the lungs. Uh, and when ventilation starts again, in this case I'm using a volume control uh, mode, you'll notice that the the machine now has to apply extra pressure in order to overcome not only the resistance, but also overcome the auto-PEEP that is, is, that is in the lung to deliver the, the same tidal volume. So at the end of uh, the next breath, you'll notice that the alveolar pressures are now much higher than where they started at the first one. Again, this is a uh, Depiction of several breaths with uh, increased resistance and the formation of dynamic hyperinflation and auto repeats. You'll notice with every um, start of exhalation, the difference in pressure, the uh, transairway pressure, the driving pressure, if you may, between the ventilator and the alveoli continues to increase. Uh, in such a way that it eventually reaches an equilibrium. So you'll notice that this is why nobody truly pops their lungs if they continue to stack air. The air stacking has to stop at some point. That's where the equilibrium process is reached. And the reason for that is now that the delta P between the lungs and the alveoli at the start of exhalation becomes so high that even though the time that is required to exhale is low, the volume that is generated by this large delta becomes equal to the tidal volume that was actually set. So we have an equilibrium of both auto and dynamic hyperinflation as well. So, what is the problem that happened that happened with uh, with uh, peep and, and hyperinflation and controlled breaths breaths in general? Um, you worry about the high pressures that the ventilator actually has to uh, produce. So your peak pressures are high, and if the peak volume is too high, the plateau pressures may go up as well. And we all know that the plateau pressures or the alveolar pressures are more important in uh, resulting in bad outcomes. The most important uh, complication that we tend that we aim to avoid, of course, is there trauma or hemodynamic compromise. Now, not all of our patients are completely passive. Some of them are going to be working as well. And uh, the presence of auto PEEP is known to increase the work of breathing, particularly in patients trying to overcome this intrinsic PEEP. A lot of times you will see an effective triggering, which we'll touch upon a little bit later. The larger the lungs, the worse the length tension relationships, so it's more difficult to take a breath. When the lungs are fuller, so if you try it yourself, take a very, very deep breath, and then try to take a breath on top of that, it's going to be much, much harder. And of course, respiratory muscles because of the high pressures can have less circulation and cause muscle damage as well. We've all seen pressure volume curves at the lung. This is also a depiction of what you may see if there is intrinsic PEEP. So you'll notice in the green is your normal tidal volume ventilation. The patient needs about a negative two centimeters of water to trigger the vent, so not a lot of work that is required here. However, when the patients who have auto PEEP, you'll notice now that your resting lung volume rises dramatically the pressures in the lung also rise dramatically and now in order for the patient to trigger they have to generate a very very large negative inspiratory force in order to reach that trigger and generate uh, the volume and you'll notice also since the pressures of the volumes are higher we're moving upwards in our pv curve and even though the tidal volumes have not changed Very easily surpass our upper inflection point and cause such strain to the lung, causing both microscopic and macroscopic barrel harm. This is some data from about 10 patients that were compared. uh, So 10 COPD patients that were compared to 18 healthy patients. to look at what the work of breathing that was generated by each set of patients was. And you'll notice that uh, despite the fact that they were all paralyzed, that they had similar ventilator settings, there was a lot of resistant work that was generated by those patients from COPD just because of the obstruction and also work that was needed to overcome the intrinsic piece itself. So a dramatic rise in the work of breathing when you have obstructive lung disease in general. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more in depth about auto peep uh, the uh, landmark uh, paper that actually first described it was in 1982 by uh, Pepe Molini. Um, they saw it in three patients two had COPD and one had uh, thermal injury prior to coming to uh, the ICU. Auto PEEP is seen in every single mechanically ventilated patient with COPD. But it's also been reported in about one third of the patients without CVP history. The causes are um, outlined in front of you. The Two big ones that I'll be talking about are decreasing expiratory time. But probably the most important um, cause of auto-peak when it comes to obstructive lung disease is an increase in the expiratory time constant because of that increase in resistance. Uh, other causes, if people are actually trying to inhale during exhalation. They may not exhale the full amount of volume that they're supposed to, so sometimes they will develop auto despite the lack of increased resistance or obstruction. Also, a high tidal volume will result in more residual air in the lungs based on your natural decay curve. And also... Uh, any external resistance to the flow, such as mbt 2 or treating patients, for example, may have problems with So normally, in healthy individuals, the normal time constant is about 0.2 seconds. So if you give somebody about one second to exhale, they should be doing okay because they're for four more uh, time constant to completely absent, but in clinical practice, we generally say that we see three time constants to achieve an acceptable resolution, right? But there's a lot of causes for uh, decreasing uh, the expiratory time. Some are patient generated because of their breathing pattern, but be aware that ventilator settings in particular can also cause that. So an increase in the frequency of the respiratory rate decreases that exhalation time. And also increase in the inspiratory time may result in that decrease in exhalation time as well. So any end expiratory pauses will increase your inspiratory time. And also low inspiratory flow rates will increase the eye time um, for any given volume. Now, when we talk about increasing the time constant as a cause for auto peep, I always have to mention that since auto, uh, since the time constant is a uh, result of resistance times compliance, both an increase in resistance or an increase in compliance can cause auto peep. Uh, although less common, Keep in mind, so to some of those patients, for example, have very, very nice compliant lungs because it's just one big balloon, basically, with the destruction of the alveoli And because of this high compliance, the driving pressure that results in uh, excellent expulsion like, of the gas actually goes down. So you'll notice in the figure the uh, plateau pressures are about 15 compared to 25 of something who's normal. So that leads to a driving pressure that is lower in COPE, which results in a slower exhalation time and sometimes can develop auto-PEEP or be uh, something that adds to the auto-PEEP and COPE dimensions. But this is probably the most important cause in, our, in the patient population that we're talking about. So increasing the resistance because of the abnormality in the air. There are two big types that I'll be talking about. Uh, the ohmic resistance is a simple one. It's a fixed decrease in the airway diameter. Our ASLA patients, uh, you'll see that in our ASLA patients, obstructive bronchiolitis and any upper airway obstruction that is fixed. Um, keep in mind asthma, the uh, increased resistance is asthma is because of airway inflammation and bronchospasm. Whereas uh, in COPD patients, there's the concept of expiratory flow limitation, which is an airway narrowing that happens during exhalation because of airway collapse, as you can see in the figure. Talk a little bit more about respiratory flow limitations. So, it always occurs during forced exhalation, even with healthy subjects. Um, but it can occur in, in uh, during restful breathing as well. So, when that happens, there's usually pathology that's involved with the small airways that makes them tend to cave in or collapse. Uh, in COPD, there's loss of the elastic scaffolding that is surrounding these airways. But you may see dynamic airway collapse also in other pathologies, such as ARDS, because the lung weights are high, or you may see it also in OBC because the uh, chest wall weight is also high. Uh, Some people have looked into this a little bit more closely and noticed that there may be some concepts of wave speed limitation, wherein the airways themselves, when they are subjected to high pressures that make them collapse, they can't really adjust the airflow and the velocity of air that's moving as the pressure travels along those airways. And this, of course, all results in true air trapping. Um, So in COPD, we see what is termed as true air trapping and that's because the expiratory to inspiratory resistance actually, uh, that's a a significant difference. So you'll see the ratio between both uh, becomes now higher. And there's been uh, some studies that support that if you measure this respiratory-to-inspiratory resistance, it can predict the true presence of obstructive lung disease. Now, expiratory flow limitation, there's several ways that you can actually detect it on the ventilator itself. Probably the simplest one is if you look at the expiratory flow curve, and you'll notice that there is an initial maximal increase in that expiratory flow, followed by a dramatic decrease. In so very similar to um, your uh, scooped appearance on the flow volume curve in COPD patients. But also there's um, other ways that you can actually try and detect expiratory flow limitation, and that's with the application of external people. And that is due to the waterfall effect, which I'll talk about in a couple of slides. So notice here, very, very dramatic initial rise in the flow during exhalation, followed by uh, severe reduction in that flow. So that just tells you that the airways were open and then the pressures became high enough for the airways to collapse at the flow rate goes down uh, estrogen flow limitation. Now, the waterfall effect has always been something that I found a little bit difficult to try and understand. Um, I'll try to make it as simple as possible. The auto-peak that is within the lungs is transmitted to the rest of uh, the pulmonary system uh, that's intrathoracic. So basically, Uh, If you look at this example, auto PEEP is 15 on the left side. So the external pressure upon the airways is also 15. Any application of PEEP that is below this number will not cause any change in the lungs and will not be transmitted into the lungs at all. So you'll notice as we go up on the PEEP and finally reach a PEEP of 20, which exceeds that critical pressure that's blocking those airways, now those airways open up and that PEEP is translated to the lungs and can actually worsen the total PEEP that we have. And here's a very nice uh, representation of the waveforms comparing uh, expiratory flow limitations at the top versus uh, auto-PEEP that is not caused by expiratory flow limitation, which is probably more related to ovic resistance. So you'll notice as you go up on the PEEP, the peaks don't change. Unless you bypass or you supersede that auto-PEEP level of about 10, right? As compared to the graph in the bottom, we'll notice in ohm resistance patients as you go up on the PEEP, both the plateau and the peak pressures will go up accordingly. So, can we predict auto-PEEP? by looking at the weight pumps and the answer is yes and you guys probably know all of these uh, all of these signs in general. So a mismatched area under the inspiratory and exclatory flow curve is a big sign of this. Keep in mind that the area under the flow curve is the volume. so if the volume in the, uh, during expiration, uh, as depicted by the area under the curve is smaller then this may signify by this is a more dramatic example of this, so you'll notice how small the area under the curve on its is here compared to uh, the inspiratory area under the curve. You see this also in the second and third breath in this example as well. Um, and you can safely say that something's off-peeping if you see it this dramatically. The other sign that you may see is persistent and expiratory flow, right? So the presence of flow at the end of exhalation means it belongs to that the lungs that not emptied out completely, right? So you, you see it fairly clearly here um, in this example, and also another example with pressure control of persistent expiratory flow before uh, expiration starts. One thing that's important is uh, to uh, recognize that the degree of persistent flow does not predict the degree of auto-PEEP because keep in mind the ventilator settings are different for people, for uh, each and every individual. So uh, so there is no correlation between that degree of end flow and how bad the auto-PEEP can be. And then the- and then the third um, uh, sign that may predict that auto is present is an effective trigger. So uh, an effective trigger dictates that the patient generates some force to try and trigger the ventilator. Um, universally, we are taught that auto causes this. But keep in mind also, people who are weaker, who've been ventilated for a really, really long time, may so actually have very weak diaphragms to try entering the ventilator. The way that you see it is generally a reversal in the flow with no um, resultant triggering of the vent. There's no breath that happens. So you see it very nicely, very nicely here. The flow actually uh, reaches zero. The patient actually tried to take a breath, but was not rewarded with that evening. In this case, you'll see that the patient actually is generating a little bit of effort that that is longer than the previous example. You see the two subsequent breaths with no work. This one is a little bit less uh, dramatic uh, in terms of observation, but this one is very, very clear. Uh, you'll see that the patient actually reversed the flow very nicely, and even was able to uh, change uh, the positive flexion and the pressure in the forearm Now, can we measure peep? Our- um, and the answer, of course, is yes. You guys know that an expiratory positive maneuver will lead to the of the alveolar pressures and the airway pressures at the end of exhalation. And if there's any auto PEEP, that number should be higher than your set PEEP uh, for the ventilator. And the difference between that total PEEP and your set PEEP will be the Value of the peak itself. Mm-hmm. This is on the period 10 You'll see that that's the majority cost button. The screen actually shows you the pause itself. So you'll notice here a total peak of about 12, the set peak is about five, it's actually five, and you'll notice that the entrance peak is around seven centimeters of water. Now keep in mind this maneuver can be a little bit. Inaccurate if somebody, if the patient is generating any effort during the maneuver. In the past, um, when, uh, for the older ventilators, when somebody would actually generate this maneuver, there would be gas compression with the valve closure, and somebody would sometimes would overestimate the, these measurements. Our more modern ventilators, of course, now avoid that because we have the pneumatic valves at the airway opening. Similarly, we can actually measure the volume that's resulting in dynamic hyperinflation if we do an expiratory repository. However, the biggest difference here is we're actually allowing the patient to completely exhale, so we're opening the expiratory valve here. Um, This is the concept that you see when you actually disconnect the patient from the circuit when their auto is so bad and causing them in compromise. So you allow a good amount of air to actually escape. And you'll notice that all of that dynamic hyperinflation volume now leaves the lungs. This is another example of tracings uh, in somebody on square wave form. Um, The respiratory rate is actually decreased dramatically down to one breath per minute. Not a lot of ventilators would actually allow that. So you'll notice that the end expiratory lung volume now goes down by 0.8 liters, which is the amount of air trapped. But again, notice once the original respiratory rate is returned dynamic hyperinflation again occurs after about 89 breaths and the total lung volume is 1.2 meters which is represented the dynamic hyperinflation volume plus the type of volume. Now
1: there's other ways
0: to actually measure auto peeps so, so, an expiratory pause maneuver is considered the static method, but there are dynamic methods where you can try and uh, predict what the intrinsic is. So if you look very, very closely at ventilator waveforms and so somebody of these passively and notice how much rise in the airway pressure there is before the generation of flow, that usually is represent, representative of the amount of pressure that the later had to produce in order to overcome that intrinsic pain. So that is one method, if you're able to see it, that's always, that may be always useful. However, in patients who are actually breathing, it's a little bit difficult to get your static measurements, right? So remember that the ventilator is a computer. If you're gonna hit an aspiratory pause button, it's actually going to wait until it ends the respiratory cycle. So if you say you set somebody at a respiratory rate of 12, then the the machine is going to count up to five seconds, which is the length of the respiratory cycle, before it actually applies the pause itself. Now, if anybody's breathing at a rate that's higher than the vent, And usually the expiratory maneuver, uh, expiratory pause maneuver cannot be performed. And that's why a lot of cases you'll see there's a cancellation of the maneuver because the patient is actually breathing. So, the best way to try and actually uh, calculate or measure the autumn treatment in these patients is usually with the use of esophageal bleeding, where you actually measure the floral pressures in the lung and see how much. There is of a drop in pleural pressures or esophageal pressures before the initiation of flow, and that degree of drop again is representative of the force that the patient has to generate to overcome that rate. Now, calculating the time constant can also be very, very, very important when we're dealing with severe obstructive lung disease patients because the respiratory rate can be determined or the best respiratory rate can be determined for these patients to try to minimize that intrinsic peak error. And there's several ways that you can actually do this. Probably the uh, most accurate way is to measure both the resistance and the compliance of the patient. And this is best done, of course, with a constant flow uh, volume control where you can look at where you can actually measure your plateau pressures, measure your peak pressures, and based on your equation of motion, you can come up with both your compliance and resistance values. And then your tau or your uh, time constant is going to be the product of both of these two values. In this example, get a compliance of about 0.05 and resistance of 16, and generates uh, a time constant of 0.8 seconds using volume control decelerating rule is just to put it simply is not the way to actually get these numbers just keep in mind that because the flow is decelerating the the resistance will be difficult to uh, measure in this case the other uh, poor man's method of doing this is to actually go by the first right so your natural decay curve we know that you have only 37% of the remaining volume after one time constant. So if you actually measure from your tidal volume down to 37 percent of that volume and see how much time there is, you may be able to uh, at least uh, estimate the time constant. So this example is about 2.4 seconds. And this is actually back to our patient that I presented at the very beginning. Uh, so he's on tidal volume 700, which is your 100%. And I jot down the time where we actually get that number. And then you calculate basically 37% of the 700 cc's and you look at what the time is uh, at that point in particular, seal notice that's about 1.4 seconds. And generally, I tell people try to do it at multiple places, try to get your second time constant as well. But notice in this case that there is somewhat of a discrepancy in the in the, um, in the measured time constants, and that's because the patient is not um, completely as passive as we want them to be, and as I'll explain in a second, there's a lot of fun, heterogeneity that prevents um, the uh, recipient as pristine as you want them to be. A third method is actually also looking at your equation of motion, um, but looking at your Ohm's law equation during exhalation. Right? So, if you guys remember, the um, expensive pressures will equal your resistive pressures. So, your F times R equals your volume of your compliance. So, if you rearrange the equations, get that the tau which is the resistance times compliance is equal to um, the volume flow over flow. And then at the negative um, sign right there just denotes that the flow is happening in the opposite direction than inspiratory flow. In all of these cases where you're trying to measure the time constant, you want the patient to get completely passive. And I generally say, try to get as many points as you can and make sure that those points align with each other. There's not much of discrepancy between them. So here's an example again from our patient. So you choose any point and you look at what the volume is and what the corresponding flow is, but be very, very careful when we're actually doing this because you want to make sure that your units are correct. So in looking at long mechanics, we use liters uh, for our volumes and when we look at the time, we're always looking at seconds (laughs) and not not at minutes. So you have to make your convergence and, you will get an approximation of what the appropriate time constant is. So once you get these numbers, this will give you a good understanding of what your exploratory time should be. And like I said, three or more tau's will generally allow for an acceptable uh, exhalation. Now all these maneuvers, whether it's measuring the intrinsic PEEP, whether it's measuring the dynamic of hyperinflation or the time constant, they all assume that the lung functions as a single compartment, However, this is never the case. Right? There's a lot of inequalities in heterogeneity in the lung. So different lung units will have different time constants. They may have different intrinsic peeps and different retained volume, right? So be very, very careful when you're looking at these, uh, when you're doing these with your and make sure you understand that things are probably different uh, in the lung. That's you might see them on your calculations or your measurements. Dynamic uh, measurements of auto peep in particular. Like when you're looking at the rise of pressure or the drop in the esophageal pressure before flow starts, usually they underestimate the magnitude of auto And the reason for that is because sometimes all you need is a small amount of pressure to allow flow in the best one units. So um, uh, Nava, who looked at maybe, maybe 10 patients, noticed that the, that the static PEEP in these patients was sometimes much higher, even as 90% as much as 90% higher than your dynamic PEEP. So that's why generally used dynamic PEEP includes a lot of caution. Okay, so really quickly I'm just going to touch upon non-invasive ventilation. Um took about a decade for people to to actually accept the fact that if we put people on non-invasive positive pressure, they actually do well in COPD. It was actually first described in the, in the 60s and it wasn't until the 90s that we were able to generate studies to improve uh, mortality and decreased intubation benefit of uh, NIB in general. We know for a fact, like I said, it decreases mortality, decreases intubation rate. Um, but there's also been some data supporting that if you fail your non-invasive ventilation, then your mortality goes up. However, um, there is a little bit of an asterisk in that because uh, they actually just did know that somebody's really, really sick and that their mortality was never really different than those who were first starting on uh, invasive mechanical ventilation uh, There are some... Uh, Clinicians, particularly in Europe that actually propose that BIPAP or NIV be the ceiling are the most that you actually provide patients in terms of inflammatory assistance. Um, and the data comes actually from a lot of do not intubate patients for are seeing very, very good outcomes uh, in these patients who were not intubated. When it comes to asthma though, um, things are a little bit different, right? Most of the studies that we have are with to respect- with um, they may be supportive of the interest of NIV probably there's no high quality uh, of trials to support this, thing. currently the guidelines don't recommend them, not in case of ventilation. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about what we do for our patients. Uh, when should it be considered? When should we intubate? The answer is uh, you guys are all a little bit experienced now and trying to understand when somebody needs to be intubated. So um, says the only indication for intubation is thinking about it. The, absolute, the true absolute indication for intubation is cardiac arrest uh, and refractory respiratory. Um, of course, if you put somebody on BIPAP or on invasive ventilation and after two hours, things are not looking good, particularly where the pH is low, if your consciousness is getting worse, or during respiratory stress, these are the patients that should... Uh, getting treated the general. And does ventilatory support actually improve things? The answer is yes. Again, whether it's not invasive or invasive, you can decrease inspiratory effort and decrease the work of breathing in the patients. These are um, 11 COPD patients that were studied um, with two different modes. So, in terms mandatory ventilation and pressure support ventilation. And you'll notice the more we actually provide support, regardless of what the ventilatory mode is, the better your work of breathing, which is reflected by the pressure time products in the left graph, and also improvement in the dyspnea overall. What mode should you use? The short answer is, it doesn't matter. Uh, the long answer is know your ventilator modes, understand how they work. Whatever you're comfortable with generally should work. Um, most um, uh, authors actually support that you use to control volume or pressure. It's better than pressure support ventilation because um, sometimes you need to sedate the patients or even paralyzed. Some authors say use constant flow because you can monitor lung mechanics a little bit better by using the force. There's some studies on PRVC, uh, comparing them to SIMD and PRVC may have been a little bit better. Uh, but then again, these are small studies, there's a lot of talk about NAVA and uh, proportional assist ventilation as well uh, to help in those patients, but there is no good data to support using them uh, for our patients. Try to avoid control modes because you will, if you're basically paralyzing the patient, uh, you may increase the work of breathing. And uh, APRV is an absolute contraindication in obstructive lung disease. And that's of course because people uh, is already there and worse than traumatic. at volume versus pressure. Again, most of the uh, reviews and systematic uh, meta analyses have shown that there is no real difference between both, whether it's compliance, gas exchange, hemodynamics, dynamics, or work of breathing, but also specifically no difference in ICU, blood uh, pressure, and mortality. What ventilation goals should be targeted? Uh, whatever targets you have for every single ventilated patient still apply here. So your traditional goals of ventilation, oxygenation apply. So make sure that these are met. However, uh, if you want to go a little bit more in depth in terms of obstructive lung disease, the four major goals are decrease respiratory effort, decrease work of breathing, minimize the auto-peak, make sure respiratory acidosis is really bad, and of course, maintain oxygenation. Right. and of these four goals prevention of uh, hyperinflation and auto-peak is the priority the complications that come from these are particularly serious so you want to prevent barotrauma, you want to uh, prevent circulatory collapse and of course from, from the uh, previous slides that we actually discussed there are several assessments that we can do so look for the signs try to quantify uh, try to assess what the supposed system resistance is and try to calculate the time cost if you can I'll pause for a question. I may run maybe five minutes uh, over time, but um, you have a 45-year-old woman uh, with COPD exacerbation. She's on pressure support. The ventilator settings are pressure support at 16, a peak of zero, FiO2 of 40%, and her spontaneous rate is 16. This is her graphics. Just based on these waveforms, what change would the patient most benefit from? Uh, the chat box open so you guys can uh, type it in the chat box if you would like. I'm also uh, happy for you guys to shout it out if you want. Okay, so if your answer, ICBs and Cs, uh, I will say yes or you're, uh, you are correct in this one. So notice that the PEEP is zero here, right? And there are signs of ineffective triggers that you see right there. And the question is... Would application of PEEP actually be helpful? Um, a small amount of PEEP is actually useful in our obstructive lung disease patients because it actually restores ventilation to the dependent regions of the lung and may prevent the collapse of the airways in general. Right? So that's why we try not to try to avoid a PEEP of zero, although we're hoping that this would actually generate a direct pressure. So um, the other big and important concept is triggering, right? So the, the higher your PEEP, the less the efforts that the patient has to generate in order to trigger the ventilator in the case of ineffective trigger. So you'll notice in the in the uh, diagram, here, this illustration here, the patient generates a good amount of effort. Drops the alveolar volume high enough for them to drop the airway pressures enough to trigger the ventilator. Bring up that PEEP and decrease that delta that the patient actually has to generate, and will result in effective triggering, despite the fact that the auto PEEP itself never actually changed. So we generally say, because of the waterfall effect. Don't give external PEEP that is more than the intrinsic PEEP because then you will worsen total PEEP altogether. Uh, most authors uh, support 70 to 80% of the intrinsic PEEP. Uh, applied externally is appropriate. But again, remember, external PEEP will not treat dynamic hyperinflation and uh, will not improve the actual uh, in Another question. 95-year-old guy with asthma is intubated in the ICU. Blood gas it shows respiratory acidosis. He's given a paralytic. He's placed on uh, volume control ventilation. Respiratory rate is 30. Diablo volume is 400. He 5. 5 and 2 is 100%. The respiratory therapist is censored and the nurse is noticing a drop in blood pressure. Which is the best intervention here? Would you increase sedation, give more paralytic, increase the respiratory rate, decrease the respiratory rate, or switch to pressure control? All right, see a lot of D's and D is the answer. So is decreasing the respiratory rate beneficial? The answer is yes. So I have here different people with different respiratory rates, and then we change the uh, the respiratory rates by decreasing it. And you'll notice going from 15 to 6 has a dramatic improvement in the respiratory rate altogether. And there's very, very good data from patients supporting that if you drop it if you drop the respiratory rates, you actually include lung mechanics. The peaks might not change because um, because of the resistance itself. But notice both your plateau and your auto levels will go down if you go down lower, and also uh, the end respiratory flow will also be better if your uh, respiratory rates are lower. This is a. Uh, Again, waveform analysis in somebody with a higher respiratory rate then converted to a lower respiratory rate. Notice the amount of auto-peep goes down from 5.5 to 1.9. And also the plateaus improves because the incidence of peep is lower. So it goes down from 10 to 6.2. In our patient that I actually... uh, in this case I presented initially, this is different uh, representations of uh, different respiratory rates. So you'll notice that the left side, the uh, rate is 22, uh, with the intrinsic peak of about 4. Drop the rate to 18, the uh, auto peak gets better to about 2. But if you drop the rate to 10, there's almost no auto peak. What about decreasing the respiratory time? So um, it is not as beneficial as decreasing the uh, the respiratory rate overall in order to decrease your expiratory time, uh, to increase your expiratory time. Uh, There has been uh, a lot of studies looking at is there. any detrimental effects of a higher inspiratory time. Uh, In these waveforms, you'll notice when patients are trying to take a breath, sometimes a longer inspiratory time that is higher than their neural eye time may lead to what we call a trigger excess, which could lead to more increased work of breathing and cycle dysentery. So this is looking at 10 patients, with COPD you know, on pressure support ventilation. Uh, they have different respiratory trigger settings that actually decreased during their, uh, their inspiratory time, so 10%, 25%, 50%, and 70%. And you'll notice that there is Better ventilator synchrony, decreased ineffective triggers. So this was an ineffective trigger, ineffective trigger. This is an ineffective trigger, and they go away once you decrease the inspiratory time because of better ventilator synchrony. However, there's also been subsequent data that show that if you decrease the inspiratory time, the patients automatically start increasing their respiratory rate. And this is independent of the flow or the tidal volume. And it's thought to be because of something called the Herring Brewer reflex, where the neural eye time going down eventually also leads to a decrease in neural e-time, the expiratory time. And so the respiratory rate goes up and decreases the auto So I, would, I will say this, honestly, the eye time doesn't really matter too much and decreasing it may lead to unpredictable responses. Sometimes they may be good, but sometimes they actually worse in the patients. So, um, almost at the end. What initial ventilator settings are best? Again, aim to meet your goals of ventilation and oxygenation. This is my personal approach, and I get this from uh, literature from Tobin. So the fist control tidal volumes don't have to be close to the 6 ccs per kg. I like to use somewhere around 8 generally. And a lot of times they may able to go much higher than that because of the lung compliance being so good. Uh, use respiratory rates a little bit on the lower side. I like decelerating wavefold over square. Most you know, patients like that, anyways. And again, the flow rates don't have to be exceedingly high to decrease your respiratory time. Uh, 60 as a as a, uh, as a baseline should be okay. Uh, I always use a PEEP, and the FIO2 usually isn't going to be that high in these patients. Medium matching isn't, although know, present, is a Cause necessarily profound hypoxemia. And then from an acid base, uh, uh, goals and targets always aim to get acceptable numbers and not normal numbers. Try to get the pH to 7.2 uh, or above 7.2. In our patient, uh, when they first got intubated, they were profoundly family acid. You may notice the tidal volume was a little bit on the lower side, despite uh, but actually also probably worsened by the decreased respiratory rate that they initially put on when the ventilator said it was adjusted um, 1 to 700, you'll notice it's uh, improvement in the acid status of the patient. Um, in HESA's, uh textbook of mechanical violation, there's uh, nice algorithms that you can potentially look at to basically explain everything that we have been talking about if you aim to meet your goals Adjustments have to be made in general. Um, I'm not going to go through all of these, of course. um, We can take a look at them if you're able to actually get my talk on as well. But the most important thing is balance. Right. So you want to be somewhere in the middle. You want to give, uh, try to achieve a low minute ventilation. You don't need to achieve uh, normal PCO2s, try to give moderate sedation, and people sometimes need to compare paralyzed. And if you can paralyze less, the better. I will say that asthma patients probably get paralyzed a lot more than COPD patients, and they would require a lot more sedation in general. Uh, asthma patients fall into two categories. There's your acute bronchospasm that goes away quickly, but you also have your long prolonged uh, airway inflammation, which can be a little bit more difficult to treat. And these are the patients that need more solution paralysis. Um, avoid the hypotension and barotrauma because that's what leads to high mortality. But keep also in mind that if you paralyze patients too much, you will cause myopathy as well. These are my take home points. Use the mode that you like. Again, acceptable creation not normal. CO2 respiratory rate going down is best, and then external PEEP is needed, but don't overdo it. It improves look of breathing, but not the dynamic type of I'm sorry about that. I actually went nine minutes above. I hope this was helpful for everybody. I'm happy to take any questions. I will stare at the chat box as well. Uh, again, this is the uh, QR code, my email, my number. Happy to connect to anybody. You guys, have any questions or comments?